I hope this time in Exodus has been a blessing to you. It is certainly refreshing uh, to open up the Old Testament because that's a a place that many of us probably don't spend a lot of time, probably hadn't heard a lot of preaching from. Uh, I know in my years it's been, uh, it's not been a a place that I've done a lot of preaching from, but it's it's awesome to see and to hear that even through uh, the schoolmaster, as scripture refers to it, that God can still speak to us a word that is relevant and a word that is helpful to our hearts and to our souls even on this day. We've been trying to cover two chapters at a time as we walk through. So today, like we have before, it's more of a 30,000-foot view. So I hope that you will uh, stay with us and be with us as we go to Exodus 5 and Exodus 6. And we'll talk about the God who delivers. When studying scripture, it's typical to review multiple translations and multiple commentaries. And while doing so for this particular text, I came across a number of headings over the two chapters that we'll cover today. If you're reading a King James Bible, your heading says Moses and Aaron meets Pharaoh. If you're reading an ESV Bible, the heading says making bricks without straw. And this is very similar to what the NIV translation shares. If NASB Israel's labor increased... And for the CSB, Moses confronts Pharaoh. The purpose of a heading is to help the reader figure out what, the, uh, what to expect in the upcoming section or to hint at the main idea of the upcoming section. And all of these headings hit the nail on the head except for one. And I want to say that I say this with all humility because people who are far more intelligent than I am put these works together. You see, Moses and Aaron do meet Pharaoh, and Israel's labors are increased in our text as they are tasked to make bricks without straw. But Moses isn't really the one confronting Pharaoh. If you recall Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8, the word of the Lord says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10 says, Come, I will send you, God speaking to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So you see, God is the one who is actually confronting Pharaoh. Does Moses experience opposition? Absolutely. But Moses is simply participating in the work that God is doing. And what is God doing? Across all the translations that we spoke of, the headings of chapter 6 all begin, God promises. Speaking of God's promise to deliver Israel out of Egypt to the land of promise, out of bondage to Pharaoh, into fellowship and lordship with God. Again, God is doing, I have come down. Moses is participating. Come, I will send you. God is working through Moses to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. Now, why is this an important distinction to make? Because it helps Frame for us the flaws in Moses' response to God's call. It also highlights for our own soul's rest and sanctification that across 
all narratives past, present, and future, that it is the hand of God working in ways that we can't comprehend or always really appreciate to fulfill his good and perfect will for his people, to reveal himself as the God who delivers. We'll frame for our discussion this morning three points, participation, opposition, and promise. We participate by God's call, grace, and strength in the work that he is doing. Again, God is doing the work. And yes, even called by God, we'll still experience opposition. But make no mistake, it is God who is fulfilling the promise to deliver. God who is doing the work. I want to share with you that outside of Jesus, Moses is uh, definitely in my top three of people in Scripture. And that's because Moses was just real. Moses was just raw. He was natural. And whatever he was feeling, that's what you got. If he was upset, you knew about it. If Moses was frustrated, you knew about it. If he was depressed, you knew it. If he felt inadequate for what God was calling him to, you knew it. So please note that as we look at the flaws in Moses' response to God's call, that it is in no way an indictment against Moses. It is, however, an opportunity for us to see ourselves in Moses and how we also have the tendency to falter in responding to God's call. In chapter 3, God calls to Moses from a bush that was on fire but not being consumed. God speaks to Moses, first calling him by name, then instructing him to take his shoes from off his feet for the ground on which he was standing was holy ground. God identifies himself, says that I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God communicates his burden. I've seen the affliction. I've heard the cry. I know the suffering, and I have responded. I have come down. And finally, God commissions, come, Moses, I will send you. Now listen closely to Moses' responses and tell me if you see yourself, if you've used any of these excuses. There's nothing special about me, God. Chapter 3, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I don't know enough, God. Verse 13, If I come to the people and say, the God of your fathers have sent me, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say? Nobody's going to believe me, God. Chapter 4, verse 1, behold, they will not believe or listen to me. I'm just not gifted, God. Chapter 4, verse 10, I'm not eloquent, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Last but not least, and probably one that we've Use the most. Others are far better at this than I am, God. Chapter 4, verse 13. Lord, send somebody else. So what's the flaw in Moses' excuses, in your excuses, in my excuses? The flaw is God says, I will, and we say, I can't. God says, I have come down, and we say, I can't go. When we say, God, no one will believe me, what we're really saying is, God, I don't believe you. And we miss, what we miss, rather, in these moments is God never puts us on the hook for the results. Never puts us on the hook for the outcome. 
He said to Moses, as he says to you and me this morning, that I, the Lord, I am that I am, I have come down to deliver my people. All he requests is that we go. Moses almost misses out on playing a role in one of God's greatest acts of deliverance in recorded history because he was so caught up in looking at himself that he couldn't see God. How many times has that been your testimony? How often have you been so fixed on your perceived inability that you failed to see God's infinite ability? What word has God spoken to you? And rather than yielding to God, you fell back on one of Moses' excuses. At the end of chapter 4, we see God in his grace as he does with us, moving Moses from excuses into action. As Moses and Aaron share God's message of deliverance with the elders of the people of Israel, we see their initial response in verse 31. And I say initial because their next response will be much different. Verse 31 Chapter 4, and the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. They believed in their worship, but we'll see that that's not always the case. Look with me at chapter 5, starting with verse 1, our text for this morning. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. After they share God's words with the elders of Israel, they move to share God's words with Pharaoh. Remember, it is God who is confronting Pharaoh and God who is demanding that Pharaoh let Israel go so that they may worship him. Feast here is worship. Sacrifice is used in uh, uh, verse 18 of chapter 3 is worship. So this isn't Moses trying to use more flattering or less abrasive words to make God's demand less offensive to Pharaoh. This is God saying to Pharaoh that I didn't create this people to work for and to be abused by you. I created this people to worship me. To continue to hold them in bondage is in violation of my purpose for them. So I must demand that you let my people go. It's also important for us to remember, as Pastor Brian shared last Sunday, God isn't simply delivering from, he's delivering to. From the bondage of Pharaoh to lordship of God, to the lordship of God. Again, God is confronting uh, Pharaoh and not Moses. And so Pharaoh's response to Moses then in in verse 2 makes sense. Look with me at verse 2. But Pharaoh said, excuse me, but Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. He asked, Who is the Lord? Not who is Moses. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord. I don't know the Lord and I don't recognize his authority. And because I don't recognize his authority, I will not let Israel go. And authority is a good word to use here because God confronts Pharaoh. And if you recall, again, as Pastor Brian shared, Pharaoh is a title. It speaks to the authority that he has in Egypt. 
and the authority he believes he has to hold and uh, he has to hold Israel and to stand in defiance to the authority of God. Authority is also a good word to use here because it speaks to the first kind of opposition we can expect to encounter as we participate in the work of God. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. God is not simply confronting a person. He's confronting spiritual rulers and authorities and powers, dark forces and evil that make war against us and war against his authority. We see this in other places in scripture, Daniel 10 verses 12 through 14, where there are other forces at work besides what we see. Look with me. The word of the Lord says, then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God, your words have been heard and I have I have come because of your words. Here it is. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Daniel prayed, God answered, but there was opposition in the heavenly places. So God addresses Israel's, uh, or rather before God addresses Israel's physical bondage, he speaks to their spiritual bondage. It's not that God was powerless to get them out of Egypt. The deliverance could have happened in the moment that that Moses said to Pharaoh on behalf of God, let my people go. But God was aiming for something more. He was aiming for them to see that he was stronger than the authority that was holding them. That they might know him not just in name as he sent Moses in his name, but by experience. As the God of covenant. See, God can change our circumstances, family. But if God changes our circumstances without changing our hearts, it won't matter if we're in Egypt or Vicksburg or the wilderness. We'll still be in bondage. And here's the crazy thing about bondage and the subtleness and craftiness of our unseen enemy. We can be in bondage so long that bondage becomes our comfort. It can become our place of safety simply because it's what's familiar to us. And in our discomfort, we will reject the path to deliverance and anyone who would open the door to it. Look with me at our text in Exodus 5, verses 4 through 9. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many. And you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people to make bricks or people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore cry, therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let the heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to the lying words. Pharaoh speaking about what Moses had to say. So we see the burden increases 
We see the treatment is more harsh, but how does Israel respond? Look with me in verses 15 through 16 and then 20 and 21. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, not to God, to Pharaoh. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. 20 and 21. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, they look on, um, the Lord look on you and judge. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants have put a, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Instead of faith and worship, their first response to God's word, they now appeal to Pharaoh and rebuke Moses. The Israel that cried out to God is now calling themselves the servants of Pharaoh and blaming Moses for their hardship. Moses isn't holding them captive. Moses didn't increase their labors. Moses didn't beat them. This is the deceitfulness of sin and the devil to make us long for the comforts of slavery when God is calling us to deliverance. This is also another means of opposition that we'll experience as we labor with God. Hurt people hurt people. Moses wasn't the cause of the suffering, but Moses just happened to be there. And so he became the object of their frustration. Again, verse 21, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. Another reason why scripture reminds us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood because sometimes you can feel like the very people that God has called you to help are the ones that fight you the most. So how does Moses respond to everything that has happened? How does he respond to Israel's fallout and falling apart after Pharaoh increases the labor? Look with me at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Again, I love Moses. His responses are so natural, he's riding the wave of, of walking with God. Burning bush, amazing, I got to see it. He turned to see. Sending you to Pharaoh? Nah, I'm good. People respond favorably as he goes and talks with the, uh, uh, the elders of the people of Israel in the latter part of uh, uh, chapter 4. Yes, let's do this. Goes right to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. People don't respond favorably. Lord, why'd you ever send me? Have you been there? Have you spoken words of life, words of encouragement to someone and then watched in horror as everything around them seemed to die, seemed to fall apart? In times of distress like Moses is doing here in verse 22, we must turn our hearts to the God who delivers. Moses' pain is real. His frustrations are real. His heartache is real. But his God is also real. And God knows the difference, family, between a murmuring and complaining heart and a broken and contrite spirit. 
which scripture says he will not despise. He calls us. He calls us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. It's 1 Peter 5 and 7. Lastly, family, God promises. Look with me at chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send you out, and with a strong hand he will drive you out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give, the, give them the land of Canaan, the land of which they lived as sojourners, sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. You keep hearing the I, the I, the I. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem. God is doing the work. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. He will not leave Israel in their bondage, nor Moses in his discouragement. But he does for Moses and for Israel what he does for you and for me time and time again and what he will continue to do until time has brought to pass what he has promised. He reminds us. He reminds us that, his, that it is his burden that he is doing the work of deliverance. He reminds us that he doesn't just want us to see him, but he wants us to know and experience him. He reminds us that it's only through his mighty hand and matchless name and the covenant that he calls us to that we can know and experience him. He reminds us that all opposition, seen or unseen, are ultimately dispatched and triumphed over through him. He reminds us that he's no stranger to delivering people because he had already delivered Moses from death. We look at in the verses 14 through 25, we won't get into it, but we see the genealogy of Moses and Aaron listed there. You see, there was a time when a pharaoh of Egypt looked over the people of Israel and said to himself, the people have grown too numerous. And out of fear of rebellion gave word that every male child born was to be killed at the moment of their birth. Moses isn't even supposed to be here because he was among a group of children. Pharaoh gave order to be killed. But God is the God who delivers. Our unseen enemy would love to do to you what he tried to do to Moses at birth. And if he can't kill you, the alternative is to keep you in disbelief or discouragement. Because in doing so, he keeps your eyes on you. Instead of God, he thinks that either through the death, disbelief or discouragement of God's people that he might somehow nullify God's plan. But God is the God who delivers. 
You see, Moses' story of promise is simply a story pointing to the ultimate promise. And thanks be to God that our enemy is uninformed and thinking that death can stop God from delivering. In Matthew chapter 2, Herod, like Pharaoh, fearing an authority that would stand against his own, gave the order to kill every male child in Bethlehem that was two years old or under. But the same God that covered Moses in his birth covered this child, Jesus. Our unseen enemy tried again later in the life of the child, bringing a now innocent man before an unjust judge and jury, condemning him to die on a cross. This enemy seemingly winning the day would see this man die and be buried in a borrowed tomb. But unlike Moses before Pharaoh, there was no request for a three days journey into the wilderness to worship. Because in three days, this man Jesus would rise bodily from the grave, declaring that all power in heaven and in earth is in my hand. Not to free a physical Israel from Egypt, but to free a spiritual Egypt from the bondage of sin. A spiritual Israel from the bondage of sin. This would be God's greatest act of deliverance in recorded history. And that deliverance is available to all who will call upon the name of the Lord and to trust in the one whom he has sent. And that is Jesus Christ. And this morning we offer Christ to you. Would you pray with me?